Hello and welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast from Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Andrew Youngson. Each month we're out and about in the college speaking to academics, students and members of staff. This month we've been interviewing Dr Tim Smith on his forthcoming event at the BFI, current student Joshua Moses about his journey with Birkbeck and American author Suri Hustved about the recent conference held in her honour. So, without further ado, let's get going. First up, research focus. Are you a fan of romantic movies? How do they make you feel? Do they bring a tear to your eye, a smile to your face, or would you rather watch paint dry? These questions and more are the focus of a forthcoming event at the British Film Institute's Love Festival. Titled More Than a Feeling, How Your Brain Responds to Romance at the Movies, the event is held at the BFI Southbank on Saturday the 14th of November. I spoke to Dr Tim Smith of Birkbeck's Department of Psychological Sciences about his part in the public event and about the state of play of current research into movies and emotions. If the event signs up your street, click on the link on the blurb for this month's episode. Okay, and thank you for joining us on the podcast, Tim. Um, Just to jump straight in, what can you tell me about the event that's coming up next month? Okay, Andrew. Well, uh, thanks for having me speak about this event. Um, The event is in conjunction with the um, uh, British Film Institute uh, and specifically BFI Southbank and they have a, uh, a new film series which is just starting up which is focusing on movies about love. Um, in the past they've had some very successful um, film series on gothic film and on sci-fi and this is the first time they're actually taking a topic which it kind of permeates all of film really any narrative you can think of probably has some kind of romantic element in it um, and so they're really focusing on on that love idea uh, and they're looking at it in in whole range of ways so you've got kind of tragic love like romeo and juliet you've got romantic comedies you've got dark love like fatal attraction um, and so as part of the event they're interested in actually starting to investigate Uh, the emotional side of film. Um, How do filmmakers use emotion in their storytelling? How do they invoke it in the audience? And so that's how they got in uh, contact with me uh, because of my research into how we perceive film. And between us, we worked out this format of an event where we're going to have a filmmaker, Lone Scherfig, the director of uh, An Education and One Day in Riot Club. And we're going to go through a series of her films talking about particular... um, scenes in which she was trying to invoke an emotion in the audience and then we're going to um, discuss these scenes with some experts in the field of the kind of neuroscience and psychology of emotion uh, to identify how it's working what the filmmakers are doing and what's actually going on in the body and the the brain of the um, audience members And, and from an audience member's perspective what do you hope that they go away having learned having experienced I think this will be a very novel event for them. It's the first time BFI have ever put on a kind of science focus on film event like this before. Uh, and so the, we imagine that the, the public who are going to be attending this are going to be coming out of an interest for film in general and filmmaking, as well as potentially a, an, uh, an interest in psychology. And the way that we're going to be discussing film may be completely novel to them, because we're going to talk about film as this very powerful medium that can shape their experiences. And we've all had these rich experiences in the movies where the hairs on the back of our necks um, rise up when we're being kind of shocked or when we're thrilled, and that we start weeping uncontrollably um, about people we've never met and never will because they're virtual characters on the screen. So it's a very powerful medium. What we want to do in this event is use film as a way of investigating emotion and perception 
and understand how it works in the human brain and how the way that we perceive film and the real world in general is about this interplay between the stimulus out there, the audio and the visual um, information that is being shaped by filmmakers and the way our body and our brain is responding to it. How did this particular event come about in terms of a pre-existing relationship with the BFI and then I guess also your own interest in this area of research? So I've been interested in film for uh, many years and as I've been uh, developing my research in uh, visual perception in psychology, I started to realize that there was very limited understanding from the science side about these more complex experiences of perceiving visual, uh, visual scenes, visual worlds, and especially visual media. But if you read literature and you speak to filmmakers, you realize they have this incredibly um, intuitive insight into what they can do to shape a viewer's experience. Um, so, the, for instance, the, the use of close-ups as a way of getting very close to a person's face, letting you see the detail of their facial expressions and their actual um, their internal uh, feelings and beliefs about a situation to invoke empathic responses in us. Um, the way of pacing those kind of those cues to emotional states in the combination with the score, uh, with the editing pattern, and with the ex accenting certain kind of dramatic moments in a, in a uh, film are really powerful ways of actually cueing us to um, reference our own personal experiences, to understand what's happening, to get into the position of a character, uh, and to really kind of give ourselves over to that narrative experience. And so that's a really powerful psychological uh, relationship that we can have with the stimulus. And so I've been interested in, in, in studying, uh, operationalizing, and experimentally testing some of these insights filmmakers have. And so that's the research I've been doing for quite a few years. And uh, in, this, in the context of this particular event, uh, the BFI contacted me because of my work in this area um, and realized that they wanted something which was more than just a, a show and tell or more than just an analysis of a filmmaker's work, which is what the, the events are typically like at the BFI. They wanted something which was novel and brought together the science with the film. So that's what we're trying to accomplish with this event. You mentioned there that the process that filmmakers go through to, to shape our emotional response to, to a film you know, it's, it's it's almost intuitive. But how scientific do you is that process as well? Do they know, you know, consciously that they are trying to create this response, or is it more of just they're approaching it as a human, and then on the flip side, we're doing the same in response? I think it really varies massively depending on the filmmaker and also the the, the whole cast and the crew involved in a film's production. Um, some are incredibly uh, insightful about the process. Um, all of them will use some kind of self-experimentation. So the typical way in which um, films are made is that the uh, the actors will be given the script, they act out a scene, the director will watch it over the camera and they will think, am I responding to this in the way I wanted? Am I getting out of this uh, shot what I thought I wanted? Um, and so they're constantly going through taking multiple takes as a way of trying to get that element. And that's experimentation for the actor in their performance and the camera cameraman and the director in the way that they're actually composing the shot. But then the real magic happens once you get to the editing suite because it's the combination of the sounds and the images juxtaposed in an edited sequence that can create the flow of the narrative and the flow of the emotional state throughout the actual film. And that's where the experimentation really happens because the editor and the director will sit together and try various different options. And you always read about filmmakers saying that the film didn't exist until I got into the edit suite. I didn't know what it was, I didn't know uh, how it worked until I was actually there in the moment. Um, for example, um, 
Danny Boyle presenting on uh, Steve Jobs at the London Film Festival a few weeks ago, was saying that he was he didn't want uh, Michael Fassbender to do an impression of Steve Jobs. Um, he just wanted him to try and invoke the character. But Danny didn't realise until they were in the edit suite that in the final third of the movie, he transformed completely and became Steve Jobs. And he saw that in the nuance of his expression and his performance when they edited it together in combination with all of the other things that were going into the film at that point. And so he was experimenting with the, the actors as a way of, of working out the, what they were trying to get out of the movie. Um, and I think a director like... Danny Boyle, um, other filmmakers like uh, Walter Murch, who I've spoken to in depth, who's an editor and sound designer and, and director, are quite explicit about their experimentation. They will try things over and over again and see the one which works. Um, but it's not, it's not a hard experiment in the kind of scientific context, because they're usually doing it on themselves. And that's a very biased sample, because you know what you're trying to look for, and you've seen the material many, many times before. Um, the only time filmmakers and film studios actually do experiments is test screenings when they, they show a rough version of a film to an audience and then they get really minimal feedback. Did you like this or not? Which bits confused you? And then they go back and change the film accordingly. And that's a really impoverished experimental method. There are so many more techniques that we can use from modern psychology and cognitive neuroscience to actually get in the moment-by-moment -moment emotional, cognitive experience of an individual and use those to potentially inform um, the filmmaker's uh, work. You're talking there about um, you know, the shaping of emotions. How how manipulative is this process, and how much are we all complicit in the overall emotionality of a film experience? Um, it does start to get seem a little bit sinister when you start breaking it down. Um, but it's a sinister process which we're fully committed to. When we sit down to watch a movie we're expecting to be entertained, we're expecting to be taken on a journey uh, and we give over um, our somewhat of our freedom of experience to the filmmaker under the trust that they're going to deliver us back to the real world not too damaged uh, but hopefully enriched um, and so in that way pushed to the extreme the same techniques are being used by people in propaganda they're being used in advertising and marketing um, but in a film experience you're taken on a journey and we sign up to it um, based on our expectations of what the film's going to be. Typically, we've got a lot of, uh, we see trailers, we know what genre it's in, we know what actor is in it, we know who the director is. Uh, and so that gives us some expectation. Um, but as we're going through that experience, we have to, we have to let ourselves go along with the ride. Um, a good filmmaker, it won't be an issue. They will just transport us. They will take us into this um, this foreign world that we have no experience of, into other people's personal lives, to empathise with characters we've never met, and to have deep emotional connections with them. Um, but if they're not as as skilled in actually allowing us to relinquish control, then we can start being distracted by annoying details. So if someone's character isn't plausible, if they're supposed to be a struggling single mother and they live in a massive flat in Chelsea, we're starting to think, wait a second, there's something wrong about this context. I can't empathize with this character. And that can actually for force us to distance ourselves emotionally from them. We're not sympathizing with the situations they're going through. We don't have an emotional connection with what's happening. Uh, and films can fall flat because of that, no matter how many techniques, explosions, sound effects, uh, dramatic moments they put in, we can actually have an, an unintended emotional response to it. So there's a real craft 
and the filmmaker allowing us to relinquish control and get into movies. Um, and then even then, individuals will differ massively in how they respond to it. I might be weeping, and my girlfriend sat there going, what are you crying about? <laughs> and God knows most of the time. <laughs> and, and lastly, to put your finger on the pulse of where we are at the moment in research in this area, where are we, and, and is there a future direction that's revealing itself? Film as a medium and film presentation is changing rapidly. Um, we now are in a period where film is actually doing quite well in terms of cinema presentation, but there's many different avenues for people actually to, um, to receive and consume and be entertained by a movie. We can do it online, we can get it through our mobile devices, we can get it streamed through TV. Um, and the, the presentation formats are massively um, expanding. We've got 3D, 2D, we've got motion simulations, we've got high frame rates, we've got low frame rates, um, we've got high dynamic range, and all these things are tweaking the way in which uh, the image and the sound come to our senses. And all of those decisions will have an impact on the way that we respond to it. The industry is constantly trying to figure out what's the next new thing so that they can have a reason for audiences to come back to the cinema or to buy their film. Um, and a lot of that is driven by the industry, it's driven by the technological innovation with only limited connection to the human sciences. Actually, what is the impact on the viewer? Does it make a film better? Does it make me sympathize with the characters more? Does it make me enjoy it and want to recommend it for, to my friends? Um, so I think I feel like in the future there might be the potential for the film industry and filmmakers in particular to learn from some of the experimental work we're doing um, and possibly work more closely to figure out, you know, do I want to commit to, say, using 3D? What's the downside of that going to be? Am I going to alienate uh, a proportion of my population because they can't fuse the image or they feel motion sick? There's things that it, I feel like it could enrich the films and make them better if they actually had that input. But that saying, the craft and the artistic insight that the filmmakers have is massive and powerful. And as I said at the very beginning, very much more advanced than the sciences have of our own discipline. Um, so I also feel like we can learn a lot by looking at film, looking at the more complex um, audiovisual experiences like film, like interactive media, like video games, and using that to have greater insight into the human cognitive neurosciences. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Next up, it's the Birkbeck People Slot. Birkbeck students are an inspirational lot, and we love to hear about their journeys to and with us. With this in mind, we've been out to video interview some of the college's inspirational students and alumni for our Birkbeck Journey online series. To give you a flavour of what to expect in the series, one of our interviewees, Joshua Moses, shares his story. I'm Joshua Moses and I'm studying LLB Law full-time. The lectures between 6pm and 9pm allowed me to manage my time. This was something that other universities didn't really give me the opportunity, in particular to engage with my subject during the day and work on my future during the day, gaining valuable experience. I'm enjoying my experience at Birkbeck at the moment. Um, in terms of the lecturers and the different people that you meet on a daily basis, from traditional students such as myself, from people who have to hold down um, full-time work. So there's a plethora of different people to learn from. 
I hope to go on to become a barrister and I hope to, after my studies at Birkbeck, I hope to go on to do the bar professional training course. And one thing that Birkbeck has allowed me to do during the day is get practical experience in a legal setting. So this has allowed me to hopefully set me up for my training as a practicing barrister in the future when I go on to do the bar professional training course. The best thing about studying at Birkbeck is that you get to learn from practicing individuals who have hands-on experience of what life in the workplace is like. The most challenging thing for me about studying at Birkbeck was learning how to prioritise my time during the day since I had a very heavy schedule. Advice that I would give to people that are in my position would be to go for it, to apply for higher education. There is no age where education just stops. Education is a lifelong journey for everybody. And last up, it's the calendar. American novelist, essayist and poet Siri Hustved came to Birkbeck recently as guest of honour at a conference organised by PhD student Alex Williamson. Held in the Keynes Library in the School of Arts, the conference showcased academic responses to Siri's work, which over the past four decades has explored some of the most profound aspects of the human condition. In between the daytime conference and an evening public reading and Q&A, I spoke with Siri in the Keynes Library to find out what it's like to be invited to your very own conference. Okay, so welcome to the podcast, Siri. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So how has today been? It's been interesting. I was asked, um, you know, to say something about coming and... Uh, I wrote a short sentence saying I felt happy and grateful and a little nervous, but that the two former feelings outweighed the third, so that I looked forward to coming, which I did. I have to say, I thought the papers were on a really high level, and you don't know that that would be the case. I mean, I read lots and lots of scholarly papers, and some of them are, to be perfectly honest, not all that good. So I was very pleased Mm -hmm. uh, to listen to these sensitive and intelligent and thoughtful papers on me or on my work. This is a deeply satisfying uh, and wonderful thing. And I I, I decided... uh, when I knew that this was happening, that I, was, I wasn't going to pretend <laughs> <laughs> you made that, that I wasn't happy. I mean, I really, that I wasn't going to be cool. I'm not cool. Mm. I think it's just wonderful. Mm. And I, as I said, I feel a lot of gratitude. Mm. So then the, the nervousness, you said, you know, part, maybe one third nervous before. Where does the trepidation come from? You're saying, it's, it's me, no, it's I my work. I think that, yes, that there's... Um, the, the joys and the perils of interpretation. But I want to make it very clear, I do not feel that I own the interpretation of my own work. I've never thought that. You put a text into the world, 
and uh, then that text really belongs to the diverse readers, one hopes, you know, that you have more than one, uh, <laughs> diverse readers who, who then assimilate it in various ways. Mm -hmm. So uh, listening to the papers today, I was not listening as someone who has any kind of definitive interpretation of my own work. I don't. Were there any particular papers that, that really hit home for you or, or, or sparked yes, your interest? Yes, there were, there were any number of them. Um, I thought uh, there were three papers about objects in the blindfolds. Uh, I have asked myself many times why I, have, I seem to have this obsessive interest in, in objects. It comes back. Uh, and sometimes As in everyday I, objects, everyday or? objects are no, well, objects imbued with some kind of uh, significance. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uncanny, sometimes emotional, and I seem to re you know, readdress this theme. So I was fascinated by the different approaches to these things in my work and using uh, different kinds of theories. Some theories I'm very familiar with and some are, I'm not. You know, there were scholars that were cited that I've never read. So that's another interesting avenue for thinking not about my own work because frankly, once you're done with a book, it lives inside you as um, part of a, a kind of inner narrative or uh, cast of characters, but I, I am not sitting at home reading my own work. But when I hear about interesting scholars or theorists, I will often go out and see what they have to say. I mean, what's it like to sit here in front of an audience and a panel who are unpacking your work? You're saying that you don't feel a sense of absolute ownership, which allows this process to happen in the first place. But what's it like to be there as, as a passive, as an active yeah. audience member? I think my overwhelming feeling is one of, of gratitude at, uh, for, rather, being read so closely. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, it is a fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> that people actually sit and work on um, what's going on or offer... Uh, interpretations. One thing I wanted to, to touch on was a lot of what was presented here and talked about relates to a new collection of responses to your work, essays on your work, essays on your essays, um, called Zones, to, of, Zones of Focused Ambiguity. What does that phrase mean and how does it reflect well, in your it, work? It comes from a lecture I actually gave in Germany at um, Gutenberg Berg University. I was something like Gutenberg Fellow. It was a, a conference on life writing through the American Studies Department. And I gave a talk called Borderlands, First, Second, and Third Person Adventures in Crossing Disciplines, about using multiple theoretical models to, to address the same question. And what I said near the end of that is that if you use multiple models, say you use a very empirical scientific model 
And then you use a different kind of uh, humanistic or, say, subjective perspective, but you put them together. You will not get the same answer. You really will not. But what you can arrive at are focused zones of ambiguity. So not much, which I say in that paper. <laughs> it's, it's not a, I'm not advocating much, even from a scholarly point of view, but rather employing multiple models to look at something that gives you a very rich picture of what's involved. And finding the value in it and, and as you say not not describing it as much and letting it seem like a puddle on the ground seeing the value of these different yes and these different perspectives that will I think allow you to ask the next good question mm. yeah. talking about um, I mean you're, you said there that you're very interested in scholarly work it's it's a space that you move within yourself as well yes but in its broader sense what is the academic sphere to you and how do you move within it? Because you, you inhabit multiple spheres. You're a poet, you're an essayist, you are a, a novelist, you have multiple audiences, but honing in on the academic sphere, what does it mean to you and how do you move within it? Well, you know, I think it was after I published this uh, non-fiction book called The Shaking Woman or a History of My Nerves, which I always intended to be a comic title. Uh, that there were people in science and medicine who asked me to speak. So then I wrote papers for academic conferences. But not only in the sciences, also, as I said, the Life Writing Conference in Germany. Um, I gave the Sigmund Freud Lecture in Vienna in 2011. I gave a lecture on Kierkegaard in 2013 in Copenhagen on the 200th anniversary of his birth. And all, as it works in academia, you're asked long in advance. So you have quite a long time to prepare. And I only take on those assignments that I think will uh, enhance my own life, you know, enhance my own thinking. And it's been a, a great pleasure because I have academic credentials. I have a PhD in English literature. And the odd thing is that to return to academic life after having no, uh, ne I never became a professor. I never entered institutional life. But in some funny roundabout way, in my 50s, I'm now 60, I returned to a broader scholarly life that has given me immense pleasure. Yeah. I, I, and one of the reasons I'm here today is because I, I don't run for the hills when someone says, oh, there are these scholars who want to address your work. I have great respect for scholarship in many different fields. And then moving on to talk about scholarly analysis of work you being here you are being asked as well to comment objectively on your own work what's that <laughs> well, like I, I actually tried not to pretend objectivity yeah. it's not at all clear that I have objectivity about my own work uh, and we, when we started talking I said I don't feel that I own any interpretation of my own work so 
Uh, objective? I'm probably not objective. Uh, it may be impossible for a writer to have that perspective on her or his own work. Nevertheless, if you wrote a book a long time ago, so for example, The Blindfold, that was my first novel, I was in my 30s, and listening to people talk about that text and quoting it, I don't remember many of those quotes, uh, then it becomes a, a distant object. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, and you probably have a certain objectivity because the person who wrote that book is a foreigner in some way. And is there joy in that? In, in, yeah. In, in the, that actually, sometimes uh, both my, my husband, Paul Oster, and I sometimes say that if we haven't looked at something for many, many years and you open it up and you think, that's pretty good. <laughs> Did I actually write that? That's the distance that can Fantastic. create a sense that wasn't so bad. <laughs> you know, you kind of because you feel removed from yeah. from the text. Yeah. Just to wrap up, okay. A, a general question: Why do you write? Why have you written all these years, and in the different forms that you have? Yeah, I think I probably said this before. I I still feel it. I feel that in the act of writing, I actually feel more alive. And that's a funny thing. And it maybe is perverse because living life is supposed to be what makes you feel alive. But I have to say this private uh, search for a text, I guess, or a story or whatever it is that you're about uh, makes me feel extremely vivid and alive, isn't it? It's yeah. funny, yeah. And it allows a moment to reflect and take stock. Is that part of it as well? I think so. I think that writing is about reflective self-consciousness. You know, you become an other to yourself just by saying the word I, but writing is even more distanced. And then I like to think that writing fiction is a way of entering other people, other characters uh, that you wouldn't uh, actually experience or know about mm -hmm. until you make whatever it is you're making. Siri, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for good questions. I appreciate it. And that concludes our latest edition of Birkbeck Voices. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about the podcast, just drop us a line at communications at bbk.ac.uk. Bye for now.